Well, we are in this uh, season of uh, preparation for uh, the uh, High Holy Days for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, and, uh, and Sukkot. And uh, certainly, you know, the preparation is, uh, is important. And uh, if you uh, remember this time of year from childhood, you know that it's, oh, uh, the high holy days, uh, unlike Passover, where, you know, you're changing dishes and all the food and all of that, you don't have exactly uh, that kind of preparation. But uh, Rosh Hashanah certainly was uh, a time when, um, speaking for myself, Relatives would come from out of town, and uh, it was a big deal. Uh, and I can still remember the smells of the kitchen uh, on uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and uh, in, in a way similar to Passover, where we have two seders, like two identical uh, evenings. Well, uh, after uh, the morning service on Rosh Hashanah, uh, we have two big identical meals, pretty much identical, but uh, a great, uh, great big feasts. And, um, and there was a tradition in our family of visiting people, visiting like uh, elderly relatives and things of that nature uh, later in the day, in the afternoon, and, and of course, going to the pond uh, and uh, casting um, uh, stones, uh, tashlich, you know, uh, uh, remembering how from the book of Micah, God casts our sins into the sea and participating uh, in that. And then, of course, uh, Yom Kippur, getting ready for that big fast day. And I distinctly remember my parents and aunt and uncle, everybody's having headaches from fasting and the difficulty uh, of it and long services and a very stuffy auditorium. Uh, and uh, it, it was no doubt the hottest days of the year uh, on these uh, holidays. I do not know why, but they were the hottest days uh, of the year. And, uh, and I remember the junior congregation, that was also, you know, our services uh, uh, on those days and just how special they are. And, you know, today uh, they're still special for us. It's not just some um, uh, nice uh, uh, memory of uh, childhood, but hopefully uh, uh, that uh, we move forward and uh, participate uh, today in these holidays and, uh, and have those kinds of family-type uh, memories, but also the spiritual import of what they mean. Uh, certainly that is uh, very important. Uh, uh, you know, blowing the shofar, we remember that, from, of course, you know, uh, uh, growing up and, and, and all of that, but not really appreciating the, the meaning of these holidays and, uh, and the, the, uh, the interaction that we're supposed to have with the Lord on these holidays. So I hope that for us, just like every Shabbat, that it's not just, uh Rosh Hashanah, services, let's hear the blowing of the shofar, that'll be interesting, you know, uh, and on the Day of Atonement, uh, oh, you know, I've never experienced that before, let's go check that out, that'll be interesting. 
But may these days actually be days where we are interacting with God and uh, being reminded of his grandeur and his holiness and of our need for him and of what Yeshua has done uh, uh, for us and and uh, remembering uh, our past, our present, and looking uh, to the, uh, the future. And really, the best way for us to get the most out of these uh, days that God has given to us is to be prepared, like anything else, right? That uh, to get the most out of anything requires preparation, right? Uh, whether we're talking about um, uh, something that we're practicing uh, to do on a, on a stage or on the field of sports or in business uh, or, uh, you know, wherever we may be, that uh, uh, preparation is nine-tenths of all of it. You know, when we have a bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and bar avrahams or bat avrahams, Really, what we try to inculcate to our kids is, is that the whole time of preparation is part of the experience. It's not just showing up on that particular Shabbat morning and doing well, but preparing for it, but getting there. And the trials and tribulations of, of working hard and learning and turning it over and sometimes frustration and sometimes waking up uh, and saying, I don't want to go to my bar mitzvah lessons. I don't want to do this, right? That's all part of the process. So I say to our kids, you know, sometimes you're going to find this like painfully boring. Hey, there you go. All right. It's part of the process. I, uh, hopefully it won't be that boring, but there's no, it's not an excuse. It's just the way it is. You might be tired. You might not have practiced. You might not have read what you're supposed to read. It's the way it goes. It's part of the process, see? Uh, and that's what makes the event so special, is the whole process. And as we said uh, last week, in one way, our whole life, it's a, a picture of our whole life. Our whole life is a process, right? Uh, as it says in the Pirkei Avot, in the uh, sort of like the Talmud's uh, book of Proverbs, uh, that um, uh, this whole life is like the doorway to the olam haba, the vestibule, as oftentimes it's translated into English, you know, the entryway uh, into the world to come. And so that we're always being prepared. And that's why, for example, in our Haftorah portion for today in Isaiah chapter 60, it's this great picture of the future. And our whole worldview changes when we embrace Yeshua, we recognize that there's this great grand future. It's not just, this is not all there is. That there is this future. There is this inheritance. Uh, there is this other world. There is another day. There is um, a restoration of this world. And so therefore, everything now becomes, in, whether we want to call it a waiting time or a preparation time, for that world to come. And just like I, I asked last time, isn't it true for all of us that in Messiah, there's this sense that we're always being prepared for something, that whatever's happening is getting me ready for something. 
And sometimes it is just simply part and parcel of this life being prepared for the world to come. Or more temporally, it is God is preparing me for the next chapter of my life. But he's always preparing me. He's not letting me go. I'm not just on my own. And whatever is going on in my life, somehow, in some way, shape, or form, God uses to uh, 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 prepare me. And in the Bible, of course, it's a theme. Uh, it's a theme everywhere uh, in the Bible. Uh, for example, the concept of wilderness is all over the, the Bible. Uh, the concept of wilderness. And remember that in the Bible, wilderness is not like uh, this uh, flourishing uh, forest with uh, uh, you know, waterfalls and an oasis and, uh, and just uh, this marvelous place. No, it's, it's desert. Basically, it's desert uh, is what wilderness is in the Bible. And when you visit Israel, you get that. That wilderness is the desert. Wilderness is uncomfortable. Wilderness is not where I want to be. Wilderness is where I could die. Wilderness uh, is, uh, is not safe. And, and in the Bible, we certainly read a lot about wilderness. And I know that last week at the women's retreat that there was... Um, great uh, teaching uh, regarding the geography of Israel and how it relates to our walk with the Lord. And the geography in the Bible is oftentimes a metaphor for life. And of course, the original readers were living there and they, they understood exactly uh, what, uh, you know, you know, what wilderness meant and, and had experienced it in a unique way. And, and it, you know, it is interesting when you read uh, about the wilderness uh, in the Bible. That's where the action takes place. Think about it. Uh, the wilderness is where Moses encounters God uh, at the burning bush. And so, therefore, the wilderness is where Moses learns of his calling. It's where Moses learns about uh, uh, the future of Israel and what God is going to do right? Uh, wilderness uh, is where uh, certainly uh, the Israelites were uh, taken out of Egypt into the wilderness. That's interesting. That they didn't go uh, right out of Egypt and get on some kind of, you know, they didn't go to the airport, right, and fly uh, into Tel Aviv, right? Uh, they were in the wilderness, uh, they were in the wilderness. And you know what's interesting is the part of the wilderness where uh, the Jewish people floundered for 38 years, believe it or not, is not the main part of where the text of the wilderness is written about. Do you ever think of that? We know very little about those 38 years except that the 38 years, meaning they spent two years at basically when they got to Sinai and stayed there, and then uh, they were to move on, right? Uh, what we read, most of what we know about the wilderness was the period of time of leaving Egypt and getting to Mount Sinai, okay? And the end of the 40-year period. It's very interesting that uh, when you think about it, uh, you know, Moses hitting the rock, 
the people being fed manna because they were hungry. All these things we read about taking place after they leave Egypt and getting to Sinai. That was a short period of time, okay? Uh, but we know uh, from the, uh, uh, the disobedience of our people that they spent all those years uh, in the wilderness. But they weren't wasted years. None of them were wasted years. We might think wasted years. You know, it could have only taken a few months, but it took many years. Well, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, a passage you might be familiar with. We turn to it from time to time. It was the Torah portion a few weeks ago. When uh, the Jewish people are uh, on the plains of Moab, just about ready to enter in, Moses recounts this history and explains that this has not been a waste of time, this wilderness experience. He says here, just beginning in verse 1, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry. Well, just thought, he let you be hungry and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Whenever I read that publicly, I always pause and say, oh, that's where that is, okay? Your clothes did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his sons, his son. Therefore, uh, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And then he goes on to describe this great place where they're going. The point for us today, sometimes we read about that great place where they're going. That's kind of like Isaiah 60, you know. But the emphasis here for us is on these first six verses, uh, which describe a purpose of this wilderness. Yes, we read they had sinned and then an entire, entire generation died in the wilderness. But nothing was without reason. Nothing was purposeless. Everything had a purpose. Uh, even though the people may have complained, even though they may not have understood it all, even though it was uncomfortable, uh, even though it was uh, difficult, God was training them. This wilderness experience was a time of training. Through every experience, learning to trust God, learning to rely on Him, learning to recognize that when things seem chaotic, God has not left us or forsaken us. They learned that God had to be placed first. They learned to be patient. They learned to be quiet and let God fight the battle. Uh, they learned that God would indeed provide. They learned that they had to uh, 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 yield to the leadership that God had provided. Uh, they learned how to be... Israel. They had come out of Egypt, and now they were learning how to be a slave of God rather than a slave of Pharaoh. Okay? 
uh, and uh, this uh, for the entire nation was a huge uh, learning uh, experience, right? Now, there's other people uh, that experienced uh, wilderness in an, in an interesting way. Uh, for example, in um, 1 Kings chapter 19. In 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah having this major like letdown moment where he had this great moment of, of victory in 1 Kings chapter 18 where fire comes down and takes the offering and, and we see that Elijah defeats the, the false prophets and, and God is glorified and so on. But then his life is in danger and he basically gets depressed. Okay? So here in 1 Kings uh, uh, chapter 19, uh, we see here uh, Elijah's life is in danger. Okay? Now in verse 3, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. He wanted to die. It's enough. Shine. You know, as, as we might say in Yiddish, Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. I love that verse, by the way. Right? He was depressed. He goes out into the wilderness. He wants to die. Good. He goes to sleep. He wakes up and he eats. Okay? That is wise counsel, by the way. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Wow, what a coincidence. He's uh, at Horeb. He's at, at Sinai, where the entire nation had experienced God and received uh, a calling. And so now Elijah himself, by himself, many, 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 many years later, is in that wilderness and challenged in that wilderness. And he comes to the very same place. He came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altar, and killed thy prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after a fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped him, his face in his mantle. 
uh, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him saying, Where, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thine prophets. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Well, then what happens is the passage goes on to encourage him, tells him there are others, 7,000 others have not bowed the knee to Baal, which, by the way, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 11 to say uh, that, uh, you know, there's a remnant of Israel uh, and we might feel like we're the only ones sometimes, but uh, we are not alone, uh, and God has certainly a, a calling for us. But here in this text, in 1 Kings 19, we see that in the wilderness, Elijah is comforted by God, uh, Elijah has this encounter with God, and he receives a calling. God is basically saying to Elijah, you're not done. There's more for you to do. But the point is, he receives this in the wilderness, not, uh, you know, uh, under a fig tree uh, somewhere, uh, not in Tiberias, uh, you know, not in northern Israel, not in the Galilee, uh, no, but in the desert. This is where he encounters God, just like Moses did, just like the children of Israel did, just now we see Elijah does. But there are others as well. If you turn to the Gospel of Luke in the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant, very appropriately, having uh, talked about Elijah, the very last verse of Luke chapter 1, speaking about Yohanan, John, John the Baptist, John the Immerser. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He lived in the desert. He lived in the wilderness. He lived outside of the comfort zone. He lived in a rough place. And in this rough place, God was preparing him for the work that he was to do. He was to be like Elijah. Now, of course, we know that uh, Yeshua himself, if you go uh, backwards uh, to the most well-known passage here in Matthew chapter uh, 3, 4, I mean, after Yeshua is, uh, is immersed and and after uh, we hear the voice out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he's in the wilderness. Yeshua was not on easy street, okay? You know, it's kind of interesting. I just pause here. I mean, probably if uh, this was, uh, if I was being graded homiletically, I'm going to be speaking out of, out of turn. And uh, that is to say that, isn't it true that, uh, boy, uh, there are many who would preach today, boy, if we hear a voice from heaven, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, then the goal is pleasure. The goal is for us to be pleased. The goal is for us to be happy. The goal is for us to have uh, all that we think we need and want. Uh, the goal is for us not to suffer. We would consider suffering coming from the pit of hell. Uh, and, and so therefore we're never to suffer. 
uh, it's all supposed to be easy and it's all supposed to be uh, uh, good. But the next thing that happens to Yeshua is he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If this is what it means to be uh, uh, the Son of God, I don't, I don't, maybe, I don't know if this is what, uh, what's, what's good for me. If, if I want this, right? As Tevia said, maybe choose somebody else, right? But no, we see here, Yeshua is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, isn't that fascinating? Kind of like Elijah, you know, 40 years, kind of like the Israelites. You have these repeats of pictures and ideas and histories to make a point uh, uh, for us. Now, we're not going to take the time to read this whole thing, but the point is, is that he's tempted in a variety of ways, and he fights off uh, the devil by quoting the word of God. And it's interesting, he doesn't quote the Apostle Paul. One would think he would, right? Uh, or he'd quote himself, <laughs> right? No, he quotes uh, Deuteronomy, the, all the passages that Yeshua reads, reads, says, speaks out to the, to the devil is from the Torah. Hmm, maybe there's something to that book, Right? Yes, there is. The point is, is that Yeshua himself is in the wilderness and he's tempted uh, and, of course, is victorious, right? But then there's somebody else, speaking of Paul, he also spends time in the wilderness. He doesn't say the word wilderness. So if you put in your Bible works or, or Google or look in a concordance under wilderness, you're not going to find it. But the word Arabia is used right? In the book of Galatians in the first chapter, he was in Arabia. What, what's he doing in Arabia? That's like the wrong direction, right? Well, if you look at a map, you'll see that it's desert. It's wilderness. Paul was in the wilderness. God was indeed preparing him for the work that he was called to do. Wilderness is an important time, Wilderness is an important time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of uh, you know, the wilderness as it's described in the Torah, Paul says this. First, he outlines, well, I'll just read it here. I've off, I have learned that I might as well just read it. It takes a shorter amount of time simply to read it than describe it. For I do not want you, in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. All were immersed into Moses, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from our spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Messiah. By the way, this gives us a little inkling into how... One of the ways we can make application of the Torah. When Paul says that they drank from a spiritual rock, it doesn't mean that he's denying the history of it. You know, that's important to understand. He's not denying the history of it, but he's also uh, using it to describe uh, their own uh, relationship with God. Okay. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. 
for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the point is, is that he's saying, study this wilderness, because there are certain principles about this wilderness wandering that apply throughout the ages. That the wilderness is uh, this time of uh, pruning. Wilderness is this uh, uh, time of, of uh, training. Wilderness is uh, a time of learning what it means to be a, a follower uh, of a God. So we see uh, certainly the importance of this uh, wilderness. Now, so, but there's more. There's more in terms of uh, a preparation. Yeshua himself, in uh, Luke chapter 14, talks about being prepared. Okay. All right, so uh, he says here um, in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to, to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to, to uh, finish. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 33. So therefore, let none, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. So he says, these are called hard sayings of, uh, of Yeshua. Okay? It's important to understand he's speaking in a certain way to motivate them. I mean, you could say, Oi, Gavalt, why is he speaking this way? Nobody's going to want to join his club. You, you know, uh, if this is what it takes... Forget about it. This is too hard. Nobody can do this. But he's saying this to motivate them. For example, when he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he does not mean that unless you, unless you in your lifetime have the nails in your hands, you can't be my disciple. No, but he's making the point that unless you Follow me at all costs. Whatever that may be, you can't be my disciple. It's, it's everything. He requires everything. See? The good news is, is that he prepares us for it. The good news is, is that this is not simply a case of, of uh, do I have the fortitude, the intestinal fortitude to do this? Am I uh, simply the kind, am I the kind of person who's disciplined to be a believer no, we'll fail, ultimately. But he's saying this to get them to understand that to embrace the Lord 
is to be committed to him, to be committed to his purposes. And the wonderful thing is that Yeshua sends the helper, the Ruach HaKodesh, to indwell us and to empower us that way. But it's important for us to see that preparation is necessary, that this kind of faith is cultivated, that we don't just wake up one day and be sold out for God. Now, there's always an, a, 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 an exception. There's always an exception. But generally speaking, this is a cultivated life. This is a life in the wilderness. This is a life of preparation. We might say, I'm not there yet. Exactly. God is in the process of indeed preparing. You know, even in this week's Torah portion, in the 26th, 27th, 28th chapter of, of Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing the people to go into the land. He's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them of their calling. He's reminding them that God will not leave them or forsake them. He's reminding them to always remember who God is. He is preparing them. Now, there's another passage and uh, Yeshua uh, says this. It's in John chapter 15. You're familiar with it, the vine and the branches. I like to start this actually in verse 30 of chapter 14. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so, I do, arise, let us go from here. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now this uh, uh, picture that Yeshua draws here uh, comes from uh, uh, Isaiah in the fifth chapter where Israel is described as this vineyard that's just dead. And you see, what we have here is, yes, a father is the vine dresser or the owner of the vineyard, okay? And he has raised up one of the vines to be the vine, to be the vine to revive the vineyard, just using different terminology, just like the servant. Right? Israel is called the servant, but in Isaiah ch uh, chapter 42, Isaiah, uh, Israel is referred to as people who are not worthy to be called the servant, who eyes don't see, who ears do not hear, but Israel is called the servant. And then we read in those passages in Isaiah, but there's one who is indeed the servant, and the one who causes the servant who cannot function to become the servant and all who embrace him to participate in that servanthood. So in the same way, we see there's one vine out of the many dead vines that's raised up to be the vine 
to give life to the vineyard. And that is, of course, Yeshua. That is uh, the Messiah. And so he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it, that, that it may bear more fruit. And then he goes on to say to them, now you're already actually pruned, you, or you are clean, because of the word which I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. In other words, the only way that you can bear fruit is in me. And so therefore, uh, he takes away those who um, uh, do not bear fruit. Now, bearing fruit becomes synonymous with abiding in the vine. Now, you know, like other pictures and metaphors in uh, the Bible and in the New Covenant, uh, you have those who kind of cling on to the vine, but never really embrace the vine. Might kind of like the music of the vine, or the temperature of the room of the vine, or, uh, you know, certain uh, good vibes one gets from the vine, but not embrace the vine. And we read those, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit, or he cleanses, that it may bear more fruit. So this issue of pruning the vine. For all of us, in this time of preparation that we're always in, there are seasons of pruning. What is pruning? What is a cleansing? These are times when God takes, takes us who have embraced the Lord, and love the Lord and, and bear fruit for God, but he, so to speak, cuts us back so that we come to the place where he knows that we are continuously depending on him and not on ourselves. Because he knows what we're like. What was the warning back in Deuteronomy? When you go into the land, you're going to see the land prosper and you're going to think you did it yourself. That's exactly what he says. And that's what happens often to us. And we have an illustration, we're fortunate, in that Paul wrote a very personal letter, his most personal letter of all, and that is 2 Corinthians. And in this book, he talks, he describes pruning in a couple of different places. One of them is in chapter 1, where he says, <clears throat> in verses 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, that we, that we despaired even of life. Sounds kind of like Elijah. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and, we will, del and, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and, and so on. But the point is, is that here, here is this godly man, this great leader, who says unabashedly, be imitators of me, as I am of God. Yet we see the great difficulty of his life, pruning. If you go to the 12th chapter, as you turn to the 12th chapter, <clears throat> I just want to say, you don't have to turn here, but you know, in, the, in Philippians, Paul says that he's learned the secret, the secret of being uh, content. But if you read Philippians carefully, he actually doesn't tell the secret. 
he says the results of knowing the secret. May I suggest that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he reveals the secret. All right, so he has this great experience with God. He has this marvelous experience with God, okay? Caught up into paradise, and it was just this unspeakable, marvelous experience, okay? Now, in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, these revelations, he's not talking about the book of Revelation, okay, you know, these revelations that he had, he said, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, to keep him from exalting himself. Isn't that amazing? How could he exalt himself? He's such a godly man. Pruning. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreat the Lord, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Messiah may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the secret. The secret is nothing was, was as important as living in Messiah. Nothing was as important as abiding in the vine. Nothing was as important in in uh, Paul being identified uh, in Messiah, knowing him, the, his, the power of his resurrection, and uh, the fellowship of his sufferings. Nothing was more important than, uh, than that. That was his secret of being uh, content. That was his secret of being able to live in prison and uh, rejoicing that the household of Caesar was hearing the message. He wasn't saying to the Philippians, bake me a birthday cake and put a file in it or get me a good lawyer, right? No, he was, he was concerned for their welfare. And he, in the very same letter where he is talking about being imprisoned, he says, rejoice, again I say rejoice. Rejoice always, again I say rejoice. Why? Because he had learned this secret of pruning from what Yeshua is saying in uh, John 15. And it didn't make him weaker, it made him stronger. Being pruned, now I am no horticulturist, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn, and I don't play one on TV. So, uh, I, you know, uh, Heidi might be able to give us uh, some insight on pruning, but according to the text here, the idea of pruning is so that we would be who we really are. Because you'll notice in verse 3, if you go back to John 15, he says, you're already clean. I'm going to prune you, but you're already pruned. It kind of reminds you of a couple of chapters earlier when Yeshua was washing their feet. He's cleaning their feet, but you're already clean, but I got to clean your feet, right? In other words, what Yeshua does for us is he's conforming us to his image. He's making us into who we really are. And so that pruning gives us greater opportunity to be... Uh, uh, to be this child of God who's, remember, our primary identity is as an image bearer of God 
and we become greater image bearers of God. And so therefore, when we're in the wilderness, it's not a time of saying, oh no, all is lost. Rather, it's a marvelous time of cultivating faithfulness. A marvelous time of assessing our lives. And so may I uh, suggest to us that in these weeks, days I should say now, leading up to the High Holy Days, let's not just be uh, biding our time, let's be abiding in the vine. Let's not just be saying, okay, uh, so many days until Rosh Hashanah uh, and Yom Kippur, no, uh, but uh, how may I prepare right now? And of course, in the big scheme of things, every day is that preparation. And Yeshua, we don't have time to talk about it, but read it on your own. Chapter 25 of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, where Yeshua is talking about the future. And then he says, be ready because you don't know the day and the hour. You don't know the day and the hour. Just be ready. Will it be Rosh Hashanah? Who knows? But be ready every day at all times. Plan for the future, but be ready at all times. See? So how do we do that? How do we cultivate that faithfulness? Well, you know, I think that it's important to do like, uh, like Elijah and like Moses and to sit before God and listen to him. To take the time. You know, when you're in the wilderness, think of it this way. When you're in the wilderness, you're away from the, uh, from the urban from the urban uh, setting. And when you're in the wilderness, uh, at least here, you're away from the conveniences of life. That's one of the things that makes it wilderness, right? And so it might be wise to take some time, maybe even just a little time a day, to turn off the, uh, the phone, to uh, you know, turn off the computer, to turn off the TV. Boy, think about this. Turn off the radio, put down the newspaper, and just meditate, think about God and his word, and sit quietly. We may not necessarily have to go and say, okay, I'm going to go out into the countryside, you know, maybe that's what it takes so there's no bars on your phone or something, I don't know. But uh, uh, you can, wherever you are, so to speak, go into that wilderness and be trained by God, you know? And so, meditate on his word. Separate yourself. That's what consecration means. When the children of Israel were at the mountain, to consecrate and make yourself holy. It's basically what that means. Make yourself holy. Separate yourself. Remember who you are in the Lord, you know? Meditate uh, on the word of God. I would also encourage you to read, not only read the Bible, but even uh, perhaps some devotionally minded books that help us to draw closer, uh, you know, uh, to God. Uh, There's other things to assess our lives, ask ourselves where we are and what are our values. You know, um, very briefly, the third chapter of Philippians is a great place, is a great passage to read. And it's kind of interesting reading it in a Messianic Jewish congregation. Philippians chapter 3, uh, what Paul says here. 
This is where uh, he says very famously, you know, I put, uh, let's see, um, I myself have confidence even in the flesh, although I might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. You know what this kind of reminds me of? Of sometimes we think, I've got to find a, a Jewish person somewhere in my history. I just need to do that. Maybe, you know, a hundred years ago, there was some, you know, uh, 19th cousin 14 times removed or, uh, or, or, or something. Or, uh, 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 or, on the other hand, maybe it's who I am in this world, you know, uh, I am someone who is uh, respected in this world. I am someone who is uh, thought very well of uh, in this world because of my, of my place in the business world or in my profession. I've reached the t- I need to reach or I have reached the top of my uh, profession. That's who I am. It's my identity. Or again, my Jewish identity. But notice what he says. He doesn't, he's not denying it and he's not demeaning it or anything like that. He's not even saying that it is, that it it has no value. But compared to knowing the Lord, it's all of no value. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Messiah, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. Nothing was more important. Nothing was more important. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And he goes on to say that I have not yet obtained it. He's still on the journey, still in the wilderness, still being trained, still moving forward. But remember, he's not saying this has no value because if you read the book of Acts, you see it has, it's important to him. But he's trying to explain to them that there's nothing more important than knowing Messiah. Nothing. That's why he says in the first chapter, to live as Messiah and to die is gain. Verse 21, for me to live as Messiah, to die is gain. And that is what we cultivate. So if you look at the third chapter of Philippians, what could we call that? A reversal of values. The primary value is knowing the Lord. The primary value is embracing Yeshua and being trained by him, and walking uh, in a hymn. That's the primary value. In a way, it's the very same thing as saying our primary identity is being a child of God. It doesn't mean our, our um, uh, cultural, ethnic identity is of no importance. Of course it, it is. It's who we are. But not that it should be, this is, my, this is primarily who I am, and Yeshua follows that. No, it's the other way around. 
And, uh, and so we need to think about that, perhaps during these days, in maybe this little wilderness experience. Perhaps we might uh, pray as David did, you know, Lord, uh, uh, search me and know me. Confess our sins uh, unto him. Consecrate ourselves. Let's take time in the next 10 days or so to spend some time in that wilderness alone with God to ask ourselves, are our values in the right place? Is my heart in the right place? Are there sins I need to confess? Do I need to draw closer to God? Is my heart fertile ground for when I hear the sound of that shofar? May it be so because the fact of the matter is if God is moving us forward away from that mountain, if God is challenging us to move forward as a congregation, to bear fruit for Messiah and to take those kind of spiritual risks involved, we need to be cultivated. We need to be ready. We need to be trained. We need to, uh, to uh, understand that uh, God is in the process of bringing us through that wilderness. And may we do so, and, and uh, may, as the end result, uh, may our walk with God be broader and deeper. And may we be prepared uh, for him to use us as a cleansed vessel, ready to glorify his name. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for the cultivation process. Thank you, Lord, that you are in the process of sanctifying us, of making us holy. Lord, for in a way, in a sense, we are forever at the foot of the mountain. And you are always in the process of making us a holy. And Lord, may we recognize that no matter where we are in life right now, whether we are like Elijah saying, I'm ready to die, we feel like the, well, the walls are closing in on us, we feel like we're under such a tremendous amount of pressure, we're worried, we're concerned about our world, about our own lives, about what's going to happen to us in this world. Maybe we're concerned about children, we're concerned about parents, we're concerned about a deadline, meaning a goal, we're concerned about taking a step of faith to go to a place we've never been before. Lord, may we recognize that we are in the process of being trained by you. Lord, may we recognize that our calling is to abide in the vine, because apart from you, we can do no thing, nothing. Lord, let us realize that it's not about our intellect, it's not about our ingenuity, it's, about, it's not about our stellar personality. It's about abiding in the vine. That's how you used Moses. That's how you used Elijah. And that, that's how you have used all of these um, uh, great uh, people of faith in the Bible. And so, Lord, may we realize that. May we abide in you. May you, in other words, you be at home in us, Lord. May we be in your word. May we be people of prayer. May we be people in fellowship, Lord. All vehicles for spiritual growth. And so, uh, Lord, uh, may we stop wasting time. And Lord, may we be in your uh, school of discipleship, your school of mentoring as we speak. And we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.